and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole, and Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. On Writing the Coast, you'll hear conversations with the winners and finalists of the annual BC and Yukon Book Prizes, as well as interviews with book lovers from across the province and territory. I've had the pleasure of interviewing my guest for this episode a couple of years ago when his book, Mama Scotch, was a finalist for the 2019 Bill Duthie Booksellers Choice Award. Here he is to introduce himself. Daryl Isigaso, Wahiaotsinia, Amiskwachi Waskahiganotsinia, Bertha Dora Nigui, Sunny Clifford Notui. So, our traditional Cree way of introducing ourselves is just saying where we're from, north of Edmonton, the Treaty 8 territory. And my mother is Bertha Dora, my father is Sonny Clifford. Daryl McLeod is the author of Pia Gao, Reclaiming Cree Dignity. Pia Gao is a finalist for the 2022 Hubert Evans Nonfiction Prize and the 2022 Jim Diva Prize for Writing That Provokes. In our conversation, Daryl talks about how he approached writing about himself and why he chose to use unedited Cree in his book. Daryl starts our conversation with a reading from Pia Gao. All right, so this reading is from the last chapter of my book, Pia Gao, Reclaiming Cree Dignity. It's a chapter called uh, Kichigamis, which means big water. And this chapter is inspired by a dream that I had, a very powerful dream on the eve of a significant birthday, where it seemed like I was going to be at home for my birthday alone, and it was a significant uh, birthday. So I had this powerful dream where all of my family came. And when I say all of my family, it's kind of like in Cien uh, Años de Soledad by Garcia Marquez. All of my family who had lived over the last 200 years or so came and to my little house and acreage here. And uh, so this uh, chapter is in- inspired by that dream. And uh, so everybody's arrived or is in the process of arriving. And that uh, open talking about my Mosho, my great-grandfather. Mosho means grandfather in Cree. Mosho and I moved to the adjoining family room and sat so close on my oxblood green and white plaid couch that our legs and shoulders touched. We didn't say a word as we watched the flames frolicking in the river stone hearth. His familiar smell comforted me. It was different from that of the old white men I'd worked with in the extended care unit at the Vancouver General Hospital. Mosham had a gentle smoky odor of pipe tobacco and tiger balm and the manly smell that all of my uncles had. My grown-up nephews had it, and I probably did too. A few kids had gathered by the picture window to point at something outside. A large doe and two fawns were nibbling on the gooseberries I had planned to pick the day before. Then they pointed down the driveway where, to where two women had opened the wide metal gate. My older sisters, Trina and Debbie, were coming up the driveway hand in hand like when they were little, except that Trina had been Greg then. I didn't think I would ever see the two of them getting along like this, not in my lifetime. But here they were, arriving together. I was so used to playing mediator between Debbie and Greg, what would I do now? And Diane would be so happy to see Trina, they had been inseparable as kids. Diane was now my Auntie Diane, and had once been my Uncle Danny. Auntie Margaret took charge of the fires in the front room, in the TV room and outside. She got her oldest boys to chop wood and make kindling. My cousins, Marianne, Chigik, Lapi, and Lady 
were already hard at work in my large kitchen with its bright white cupboards and gray ceramic floor, baking bannock and cutting up the mosoyas, onions, potatoes, and carrots to make a huge pot of mousse stew. I admired their beautiful brown complexions, wishing I was as dark as them, but my father had Scottish and French blood as well as Cree. Uncle Jack's boys, Dennis and Max, were in the forest helping my brother Travis to set up teepees for the women and build lean-tos for the men. There was bear scat around, so Mushum told them and all the other men to pee outside on the edge of what would become our encampment to delineate our area. Bears are sacred and our animal guide. We're blessed to have them nearby. When Mushum overheard a few of the boys talking about teepee creeping at night, he told Uncle Jack to remind them that all these girls and women were their aunties or cousins, so they'd better keep their energy for another time. If they wanted to play amongst themselves, that was their business. The young guys laughed and said it was easy for an old man to say that. Uncle Jack was halfway through translating that last bit for Mushum from English to Cree before he realized what he was saying. Mushum laughed and said in Cree, Tell them if they reach my age and still wake up with a throbbing heart on, they'll be lucky. Even the old guys who can't do it think about it and wish they could. Mushum laughed again so heartily it caught on like wildfire. Soon we were all laughing and some cousins went up to Mushum to shake his hand and slap his back. Back at the house, my nephew Joseph had some reggae music blasting. Bobby McFerrin singing, don't worry, be happy. Mushum whistled along with the opening and shuffled his feet to the beat the way he would in a tea dance, tap one foot slightly, slide it in front of the other, then shuffle the back foot forward and tap it too, repeat. Halfway into the song, he asked mother what the words meant. Then he laughed, tap wait see. Then laughed some more before saying something in Cree to Kukum Philemon. She laughed too. As the west sea breeze picked up outside, it magically conjured a wall of fog from the ocean surface and pushed it toward us, chilling the air. An unusual pigeon with a delicate white crest around its neck landed on an elder bush covered with drying red berries and pecked away at them before flying off again. A robin splashed around in the green plastic plant tray that served as a bird bath sitting atop a hemlock stump. A raven somber, ha, ha, croak in the forest. Mother, Debbie and Trina were visiting with Gaylene, my sister, who was the fairest at the house so far. Mother appeared distraught on the verge of tears. Everyone in the room knew she was about to say something important, so they hushed. I feel so upset that me and my brothers, Louie, Jack and Andy, and our aunties have to translate for Mushum and Kukum because you kids can't talk Cree. So unfair. But I thought I'd done the right thing. You too, eh, Margaret? When we taught you kids English and told you to speak it every time you ask us about a Cree word? The nuns brainwashed us into thinking our language was bad and our cultural evil, and I fell for it. Should have been smarter, even though I was only a kid at the time. Now I see I was wrong. In just two generations, we're losing our beautiful language, Nehiao. I still love it, and it is the language I dream in, but I see it will be impossible to bring it back in our family. Such a tragic mistake. Horrible, because it ain't like Chinese, Hebrew, or Swedish. All them languages got a home base. Millions of people speak them in their life every day. They won't ever get lost. But in our home territory, our vast land, it was all stolen. And our language could be lost in 20 years and nobody cares. 
I feel so ashamed of what I've done. Daryl and Trina speak some Cree, but Debbie's kids and grandkids don't speak a word. Two generations and it's lost. Hurt so much to see that you kids can't talk with Musham and Cookham the way I'd done my whole life. We've always been close. How can you get close to a person if you can't even share a simple conversation or have some cultural things in common? Wah, wah, so squats. Mother moaned as she left the room. I went after her. Mom, it's not your fault. They punished you. It was more like torture for a seven-year-old. Bread and water for two days just for speaking Cree. Thank you. Thank you. My first question for you is a bit of a, it's my, my silly question of the year, but if you could read one book or watch one TV show for the rest of your life, what would it be and why? Well, I'm going to cheat because I learned uh, from reading Alice Munro that writers should always do put things together in pairs. <laughs> so I'll tell you what album I would listen to while I'm reading. I love that. <laughs> yeah, I would listen to Emma Chaplin's album, Carmen Mio, because I've been listening to it for 14 years. You know, everywhere I've traveled, I took it with me. I know I'll continue listening to it the rest of my life. It brings me great solace and peace and uh, comfort. And I would read, surprisingly, my own two books, Mama Scotch and Pia Gao, not because I'm that egotistical to want to read my own books, because I worked with a mentor named Shana Lambert before I actually got a book deal. Uh, she helped me to edit my book. It was one big manuscript that Mama Scotch and Pia got combined. And at one point she said to me, Daryl, this is amazing. You've managed to conjure all of your ancestors and family who have gone. And that's why I would linger with my books because I've managed to convert. I, I, I agree with her. I managed to conjure the spirits of my ancestors and close family and I would add close friends who have passed onto the other side and I love spending time with them so that's why I would do that. That's lovely. I actually had the pleasure of chatting with Shana for the podcast last year about Oh, that isn't that address. nice? So yeah, it was great. Oh, sweet. Yeah, she's yeah. a great friend. So I, I spoke with you, I think it was a few years ago now, when Mama Sketch was a finalist for the Bill Duthie Booksellers Choice Award, and I fell in love with that book and uh, how you told that story, and as soon as Pia Gao was available, I pre-ordered it, and it was just such a pleasure to spend time with you in the pages of that book. And as you just mentioned, it seemed like the book was probably written as one entity, uh, but I've heard from some writers that oftentimes you learn it's like learning to write a new book every time you start and I wondered if that was the process for you with these books was there kind of a new beginning when you started writing Pia Gao after Mama Scotch? There was except I knew some things I knew the structure was going to be the same so it's um, linked story-like chapters uh, linked short stories really and I took a similar approach by starting sort of with poignant moments in my life for each, uh, each chapter, each story. And then I also knew I wanted to um, shift around in time, uh, style, and structure within the chapters. I didn't want, you know, every chapter to kind of be predictable or be the same. And uh, so... It, 
Piagall went much more quickly than Mama Scotch did, partly because I used uh, some of the pieces that had been cut in the editing process from Mama Scotch, found their way into Piagall. And um, I knew I was more, much more confident in what I was doing. So, you know, it came together a lot more quickly than Mama Scotch did. Mama Scotch took about six years and Piagall took probably two. But it's interesting, it was equally as nerve wracking to submit the manuscript. I had a two book deal, but, um, and my publisher is great, but every publisher, you know, it's a business. So they had to put in protective clauses. So they had like five out clauses <laughs> if they didn't, if Piagall wasn't up to the same level of quality in terms of writing, or if I really missed the deadline, those kinds of things. So, you know, I was sitting sort of on pins and needles wondering if they would use one of those out clauses uh, you know, two months after I submitted the manuscript to Piagall. But then one day I got an email from my agent and um, she had forwarded an email from my publisher. And they said they found, you know, that Piagall was the same great quality as Mama Scotch. And so they were happy to accept it. So that was nice. Yeah. <laughs> it, it sounds like you, you know, like you knew a little bit of what you wanted to do with the book right from the get-go. But did it, did it hand you any surprises? Mm -hmm. Did, were there parts that you didn't expect that kind of emerged as you were writing this book? Oh, yes, there were. <laughs> <laughs> and those parts were the parts that when Shana was reading, for example, she said, oh, my God, Daryl, where did that come from? And I would do the same thing. For example, at the end of one chapter, um, the second, cha I think it's the second chapter of uh, Mama Scotch, uh, there's a scene that I was just at this very table actually writing and I was almost finished the chapter and these two sentences came to me and at, when I was finished I stood up and said what the hell was that where did that come from and I thought oh I have to erase that that's too outrageous you know that can't go in there but you know those are the parts that Shana said were amazing and uh, for another chapter this is also in Mama Scotch I end the chapter with the crow going call 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 and <laughs> I remember the day I sat down with Shana to look at that chapter she said She'd read it in advance, in advance, of course, and she just said, who does that? <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, so those were surprises. And I still find it in, in my writing that it, it's partly I have another mentor, for, you know, Betsy Warland. And she was my very first writing instructor, and I mean, for memoir writing and uh, mentor. And um, she has this kind of leitmotif to um, follow the narrative. It knows where it needs to take you. And so that was really critical information. So when, you know, I get these surprises, I put them in and then I usually leave them. Yeah. Do you go back and read it and wonder who wrote that? Like I have those moments where I don't even remember writing some of it. I sure do. Like now when I'm going to do readings uh, from either of those books, I go back and think, wow, <laughs> you know, where did, when did I write that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was actually, I listened to your uh, reading that for the Massey Art Gallery that we did with you, uh, I guess it was last month now. And you yeah. mentioned when you were, when you were talking about the, the book that you talk about yourself in the third person when you talk about the book. And I wonder why it's important for you to do that. And if you approach yourself the same way as you write it, do you see yourself in the third person as you're writing about yourself? Or is it to have that distance? Or how do you work with your story as you're writing it? 
talking about myself in third person when I'm discussing my work um, is a trick I learned from Betsy. And, you know, she didn't uh, give the rationale that I'm going to give you, but the main reason I do it is to not get too caught up in the work while I'm talking about it. It's powerful stuff. It's powerful content there and very, as you know, really personal. And it would be easy, too easy to get caught up in emotion and not make it through the interview. And uh, so just to have that little bit of distance is good. When I was writing, I think that was actually the case. I I probably thought about uh, Daryl as a character rather than Daryl being me. Pretty sure, yeah, and it works. I'm certain, that's certainly what I'm doing now in my um, third, sorry, in my, yeah, in my third memoir, my fourth book that I'm working on. I'm, certainly treating myself as a character rather than me. Yeah. Do you find it's easier perhaps with that approach, especially when you are dealing with the, with, you know, those hard memories and the trauma to have to think of yourself as a character? It certainly helps, (laughs) (laughs) you know, in a panoply of characters and interacting with the other characters and for the analysis and those things. um, it, it, It really does help. Yeah, and I think it also helps you to get to know yourself a bit better. Yeah. Something that I'm I'm really captivated with memoir, I read a lot of memoir, and uh, it, it allows us to, I really think it allows us to reclaim our own stories as memoir writers. But I wonder how the process helped you reclaim your story, but also what you think of memoir in terms of reclaiming, like, Um, cultural narratives and community narratives that have been taken away and rewritten by history and other people. Well, Megan, that sort of uh, relates to part of the reason I wrote those, my my memoirs. When I was in university, I became really good friends with a couple of French professors who were actually a married couple. And uh, they took me under their wing and mentored me and helped me to become fluent in French. And made sure I spoke French well and learned it well and those kinds of things. So as you can imagine, you know, I'd go to, over to their house quite a lot for dinner and have some red wine and share a lot of good meals. And we'd sit around talking for hours and hours. And after I told them a bit about my family story and my story, uh, the story of my people, they said to me, and this would have been in like 1984-ish, and they said to me that they felt it was really important that I write, that I write those stories about my family and my history, because I would be sharing a part of Canadian history that only I could share and or someone like me could share. And so they were very convincing. And I kind of, I mean, there were a few other things too, but I, I knew that I eventually would. And of course, when I, I studied French literature and so I reread some memoir like, uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau's Confession. I, I I still remember that. I remember he had his memoir was in ten volumes. The Confession is ten, and they're not volume. They're ten tomes. They're huge. And I read two of them, and I thought, oh, you know, who would ever write ten ten volumes about their own life? But that really inspired me. I I I loved the the can. He was very candid, and I loved his writing style. And I remember thinking then too that. Um, yeah, someday I'd like to write write my life story. I, I know it won't be 10 volumes, but <laughs> but I, I think it was really critical to capture the point in time where my family, my people, 
when I say people, I mean, it's the Cree people of Northern Alberta. We had survived colonization that was rapid and brutal. And it was really important to document, I think, and I tried to document that and make a, a statement too on Canadian society and this, the, the era we, we were in. And we, we've moved on, we're in a, a, a bit of another era now, but um, it was really important to make a commentary on Canadian society and what happened to my people and so many other people across the country. Yeah. I think memoir has played such an interesting role, like your books, and uh, I'm thinking of Nishka by Jordan Abel as well. In mm-hmm. um, they they sit in an interesting place, I think, within creative nonfiction because there's so many there's so much history that has been lost and that we don't have because it's oral history or because of who the history writers were. And I think memoir has, for so many communities has bridged that that gap that of what has been lost. Um, and I wonder what yeah. your thoughts are on memoir in that way. Well, I agree with you. It sort of takes, makes, it brings history alive and makes it more personal and more intimate. You know, we all took history in high school and Canadian history was horribly taught when I was, you know, in high school, it was probably the most boring subject you'd ever want to study. Uh, and it shouldn't be that way, but that's what, that's what was written in the books that the textbooks we used and the the instructors, the teachers followed the textbooks. So memoir is sort of reclaiming that space and converting the teaching of history into uh, storytelling, which is brilliant. And I, I love the memoir format. When I took my first course with Betsy Warland, her, the title of her course was uh, a memoir of inquiry. And then I read the, the description and that really captured my interest because, you know, in a memoir of inquiry, you're not talking, it's not like autobiography where in, excuse me, 1984, this happened or in 1976, that happened. Sure, you do talk about those, the, the events in your life, but you, you talk about the event and then you talk about how they impacted you as a person then the world around you, how it was impacted, and how they've shaped you into the person you are now, and how you feel about those events in your life in retrospect. So it's quite fascinating, and it and it is really personal. I mean, as you know, Megan, the the one of the biggest, maybe the biggest and most important um, accomplishment of writing memoirs to to find your authentic voice, to find an authentic voice that's also compelling. And interesting and uh and that takes work and i was so fortunate to have a mentor like betsy because she was did such a good job of just sort of grooming my voice along so carefully and gently uh never being intrusive or changing it or shaping it differently than the way it was coming out and now when i'm mentoring people i'm very conscious of that same dynamic um, so, and, you know, just like a singing voice, when a person has a singing voice, it, it's wonderful to hear trained voices, you know, professional singers. Who, but I also love to hear voices that um, don't have that kind of high level training that are just very authentic and very natural. And it, I think it's there's a nice parallel there with with uh, written memoir. You know, you get a, a real variety and range of voices. And, you know, it seems that of late editors and publishers are allowing a bit more latitude that way as well 
to sort of let the rawness of the voices come onto the page, which is really quite intriguing. Yeah, it seem, it just seems like the the boundaries of what memoir can do are just expanding all the time. And it's so yeah. exciting as a reader and a writer to see what people are doing with memoir now. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. As I was preparing to chat with you, I was flipping through the book again, and I was reminded that you had included such lovely photos in the book, in addition to huh. all of your writing. And and I wondered about your the decision to include the photos, because not, not everyone uh, makes that choice. And why did you want to include that? And how did you choose which photos to include? Well, the publisher gave me the option, which um, Douglas McIntyre, of including um, photos. And I thought it was a brilliant idea. And I think it just brings it home for people. I mean, I, I, I think we all gravitate towards photos. And I mean, it's a bit of a joke among people who don't like to read very much. It's like, just show me the photos. But, you know, and that old saying, a picture paints a thousand words. Um, but I wanted to share, you know, very precisely. I, I talk about my mother and um, my moshom, my brothers and sisters and cousins. But, you know, I I felt they were, and I still feel that they were so beautiful. Um, and of course, I'm not talking just about, you know, physical beauty, but um, they were just such incredibly beautiful people that I wanted others to see them. I wanted uh, to be able to share the pictures of, of my my immediate family and, and of my extended family, my cousins. In, in Cree culture, um, your first cousins on your mother's side and your father's side are like your brothers and sisters. And the word is the same for brother and sister or for your first cousins. And that's the way we grew up really as well in our community. Um, I felt as close to my uh, first cousins as I did to my sisters and brothers. And also there's, I talked about a rawness earlier. Um, people could see for themselves in those pictures, the environment we grew up in. We grew up in the bush, you know, and I, I really wanted to bring that point home that we grew up in the wilderness and uh, of Northern Alberta. And we were, you know, in, in our minds, when we, before we were forcefully relocated from our traditional summer living area, we lived in an extended family setting and it was, it truly was idyllic. In our minds and hearts, we weren't poor. You know, we thought we were rich because we had all the moose meat we wanted pretty much, all the rabbit meat we wanted, berry picking all the time and all the herbs and medicines. And, and I don't remember us ever feeling poor. Mind you, I wasn't an adult, I was a kid. But it wasn't until we were forced to re relocated to a, a town that was um, a majority white people that we, we realized that in terms of Canadian society and Western society, we were poor, like dirt poor. And so I wanted to reflect that in the pictures too, in a very um, immediate way. And pictures are the best way to do that. Yeah. In the reading you did, you you talk, you shared your mother's words about her her sadness and the loss around not teaching you and your siblings Cree, and and I know you're learning Cree and and you hope to be fluent uh, one day. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I wondered what it's been like for you 
to reconnect with the language, but also what that has meant for you in terms of reconnecting with your story and your family's story and your community's story. Right. Well, I, I wanted to include Cree in the books. I knew that. I didn't know that title was going to be Cree until quite late in the day. I had a, like 13 possible titles listed for Mama Scotch. It just came to me one day as I was working on that chapter where my mother and aunties escaped from the residential school and um, one of them says, Mama Scotch, we're free. And I thought that's, I remember that word. That isn't a word I had to learn. I, that's a word I remembered from my childhood. That because because mom used to always say it when extraordinary things happened, good, medium, and bad. Mostly good though. Astounding things happened, and um, so I, that word had stuck with me. And so when I was reread that section, I thought that's the word. And I'm so glad that I I, I think I'm 98% sure that I'm the first author in Canada, maybe North America to publish a book with a Cree title, with an Indigenous word as the title. And I'm so glad that I did that. It, it may have cost a bit in sales, I don't know. The publisher insisted that, and correctly, that I have an English subtitle so people had something to hang on to, to, to remember when they went shopping for the book, I guess. But I'm so happy and proud that I used Cree words for both books. And that I used untranslated Cree in the in the, the content of the book. Not, and not only was it untranslated, it was unedited. So other authors who have used some Cree in their books have talked about people they hired experts to um, edit their Cree and make sure it was correct. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to show the status of my, my broken Cree. So I did. You know, it's, I think because of that, because of the titles and the Cree content, I think it's, I, it's the, the books are truly historic. And um, I'm so, so happy about that. Learning Cree, you know, I, I grew up hearing it, of course. Uh, my aunts and uncles and grandparents and oldest cousins all spoke Cree, and it was around us all the time. And when I started, I got I uh, went to a, a college in Alberta one summer, and it's called Blue Quills. And I got a series of books and tapes because I'd heard they had the best program. And it, it is really a good program. And some of the words that I would hear would just bring such emotion, you know, because I remember my mom saying, like, Nesto se, he's tired, you know, and just like hearing that word just brought, you know, a huge emotional reaction to me. And mitso, uh, mitso tan, let's eat, you know, important words like that. Um, so it was, it wasn't, and it's still very emotional for me to to learn more Cree. I said in... Um, in the first chapter of Mama Scotch that I realized that the way my mom told stories was un different than the way we heard stories told in school. They weren't linear, they were, she talked in spirals. And I, so I realized that her brain was hardwired for Cree. And through this, through my writing process and studying Cree, I realized joyfully that my brain, luckily, is also hardwired for Cree. <laughs> And it's really intriguing now seeing all these Indigenous authors. You know, there's a wave, a, a tsunami of Indigenous voices out there, which I love. It's so exciting. And more and more, I think, you know, we're being allowed to express ourselves in, in our own way, uh, which is really different than a Western way of thinking. And it's it's really exciting to see. Yeah, I I often think about 
plot and structure in books and and for so long you know we everyone wrote books with that very traditional the formula narrative yeah. arc right and and it it's so exciting to read you know books by indigenous authors but also um asian authors and like mm -hmm. because because there's just so many ways to tell a story of course but for so long we've only been telling them in a very limited way so it just it's such an exciting time to be a reader uh with books like yours and and so many others coming out i i wish i had more time to read that's the only i know downside. what you mean I wanted to ask you one last question, and uh, I wondered what you've learned about yourself as a writer through having published Mama Scotch and written and published Pia Gao. What have you learned about yourself as a writer through this time? Well, that I can be quite obsessive. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, starting with writing Mama Scotch, you know, I, I sort of did it as a hobby at first, like I'd have a couple hours here, a couple hours there, and whenever I felt like it, it could be morning, it might be afternoon, it might be the evening, it might even be late night. But at one point, you know, it sort of, had, it came together as a manuscript, and I was working with Shana Lambert, and I met her in Vancouver to go to have a face-to-face. -face. She'd been through the whole manuscript, and we had together worked through most of the manuscript. And she said to me, I'm, Daryl, I'm so excited for you. I don't, you know Shana, she's very expressive, yeah. right? And... Uh, and I was like, what? And she said, this really has legs. And, you know, from that moment on, I became obsessive. It was like, okay, then I have work to do. And so my, you know, a few hours here, a few hours there became like eight to 10, 12 hour days, you know, five, six, seven days a week. For the last couple of years, I was working on Mama Scotch. And then the same for Pia Gao. You know, I was just obsessed to get it done. And, you know, that obsession was, um, you asked me what I learned about myself as a writer. It was partially uh, my personality coming through as a writer, but it was also because I think it was something kind of uh, intuitive, quasi-spiritual that I knew these books had to get out. Now was the time to get these stories out there. And it was interesting talking to Shana because she'd say, you know, they're ready when it, it's, they'll be ready when they're ready. Like the book will be done when it's done. Why are you feeling so pressured? And I said, I don't know, but I know that these books have to get out there now, like ASAP. And so I was really driven, but it, it's very similar in, uh, you know, the, the novel that I've been working on that I just, uh, it's near uh, final, near final form been obsessed about that and I have a muse that is merciless and when I had a bit of a break from writing the novel because it was with a publisher uh, with the editor I should say and then um, I was nominated I was a finalist for the the um, Writers Trust a nonfiction prize which is a huge honor and I was very emotional about it. it you know things like that take on a life of their own they ask you to they ask me to write a few commissioned pieces and then they asked me about photos too. Oh, and you asked me how I picked the photos and I didn't answer that question, but <laughs> I had to pick photos for them. And they said, yeah, we need, you know, like maybe you could send us, I think they said a hundred photos or something. And I was like, okay, well, that'll only take me a few days because I have thousands of photos to go through. And it did take a few days and then writing the commission pieces and then their interviews and then they got me to mentor somebody. So one day I was whining to myself about not having enough time to write. And my merciless muse said, 
well, write about that. Then write about what it feels like to not have time to write. And so I started and guess what? It just flew out of me. You know, like yeah. I think in four months I had half of the first, half of the first rough draft of, of a manuscript. Yeah. It's a merciless muse is really something. Do you have a, do you have the inner critic on the other shoulder or do you just have the muse? Um, the, I don't allow the inner critic to do, to act, get, become active. I have a sy systematic way of editing and I've made that my rule for myself. I have like what I call my six stage editing process, which is now I think seven stages. And I'll only let myself do that after I have what I feel is a solid draft of the book. And I came up with that because I found, and you've probably had this happen to you. I think most writers have had this happen where, you know, you're, moving things around and making changes, then you realize that maybe it isn't getting better. <laughs> maybe it was better before, or you do a full circle with some sections, you know? And uh, so I won't let myself go in. Once I have what I think is a solid draft, I won't let myself touch it. I treat it as if I was working with somebody else's work, being very respectful of it. And then I have my six stage editing process that I apply to it methodically. That was Daryl McLeod. Daryl's book, Pia Gao, is a finalist for the 2022 Hubert Evans Nonfiction Prize and the 2022 Jim Diva Prize for Writing That Provokes. If you would like to find out more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, visit our website at bcyukonbookprizes.com. You can also find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Next time on Writing the Coast, you'll hear my conversation with David A. Robertson and Julie Flett. Their book, On the Trapline, is a finalist for the 2022 Christy Harris Illustrated Children's Literature Prize. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast. <laughs>